We continue our sermon series in Matthew chapter five. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. We also have a, a church app that you can download that has a sermon guide with the scripture and outline and questions to help you follow along. Matthew chapter five, verses 33 to 48. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. T.F. Torrance was a theologian in the 20th century, but before that, he was a chaplain in World War II. And one day on a battlefield in Italy, he was attending to a dying 19-year-old soldier. And as he attended to this dying 19-year-old soldier, the dying soldier asked him, Padre, is God really like Jesus? And Torrance said that question in his mind struck at the deepest cry of the human heart. That on the other side of death, do we meet the same God who entered this world as a lowly, humble baby? Torrance responded to this soldier and assured this dying man with these words, God is indeed really like Jesus. There is no unknown God behind the back of Jesus for us to fear. To see the Lord Jesus is to see the very face of God. The Father is like the Son, the Son is like the Father. Jesus, the Son, 
in this prolonged sermon he's giving that we're going through, in this passage, is highlighting the love of his father. As we've seen in the, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving a lot of commands. But he's quoting from the Old Testament, he's quoting from the Ten Commandments, and first and foremost, before you hear these as commands, what Jesus is doing is telling you what his father is like. He's saying, this is what my father is like. And now as his image bearers, I want you to go and love in the same way. But first and foremost, this is a revelation of God's love. And Jesus is saying, this is what my father's like. There's two verses here, verses 44 to 45. Love your enemies. Why? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You see what Jesus is saying. What I am telling you to go do is who my father is and how he has treated you. Our heavenly father's love is perfect, perfect. Yours and mine are not. Our, our love this side of glory will never be perfect, but that doesn't mean that we don't strive with Jesus to be image bearers of our Father's perfect love and trust that because Jesus lives in us by his spirit, that Jesus' desire through the spirit is to reveal the Father's love through us. So the question here is what kind of love reveals God's love to the world? What kind of love reveals God's love to the world. First, a love that is honest. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. This is almost a direct quote from several places in the Old Testament. One of these is Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. You say, so what's the problem here? Jesus accurately quoted this command in the Old Testament. If you make a vow, keep it. If you make a pledge, keep it. Well, to understand the problem that Jesus is addressing, you have to understand the original intent of this command or this law. What was the original scope of it? The, the Jews of the day had developed this very ornate loophole system that kept them from having to absolutely obey this command. You say, well, what was the loophole system? What, what exactly was the loophole 
system. Jesus explains it in verses 34 to 36. He says, don't take an oath at all. We'll get to that in a second. But then he describes the oaths that they would take. They would swear by heaven. They would swear by earth. They would swear by Jerusalem. They would swear by their own head. And the reason they would do that is it was understood in that day that if you sweared or took an oath and didn't use God's name directly, it wasn't binding. You could swear by heaven and swear by earth. And then if push came to shove and you following through on what you swore by wasn't really convenient, you didn't invoke God's name. And so you really didn't have to follow through. Now, Jesus addresses the absurdity of this. When he says that heaven is the throne of God, earth is his footstool, and Jerusalem's the city of the great king. So substituting heaven or earth or Jerusalem for God's name doesn't void the oath because those things are connected to God. And then he goes from an oath to the greatness of God to, the, to more the littleness of people when he says you can't change the color of one hair on a head. And that doesn't include dying. You don't have the power to do that. So why in the world would you swear by your own head, someone of so little power? Right? Jesus is unpacking the absurdity of this whole loophole system. You say, man, what a, that's ridiculous. It reminds me of the game. I don't know if it's still a game. My kids have some different version of it. But when I grew up, if someone asked you a question, as long as you had your fingers crossed, remember this, and behind your back, you didn't have to answer honestly. Or if they asked you to do something and you said yes, but you had your fingers crossed behind your back, you didn't have to follow through. That's what was going on in a much more sophisticated sense. That was the culture of the day. So how does Jesus correct this problem? He says, quit taking oaths. Just quit taking oaths. Now, the, the oath wasn't the problem. In fact, the apostle Paul swears by God's name and calls God as his witness in Romans chapter one. God himself swears in, in, in Genesis 9 to never flood the earth again with a universal flood. God swears to send a redeemer in Luke chapter 1 to raise his son from the dead in Acts chapter 2 and Psalm 16. The problem wasn't the oath. The problem is they were taking an oath and swearing by oath to justify lying to justify being untruthful. And so Jesus says, just quit taking oaths and let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now you say, boy, I'm glad I don't play that loophole game or I'm glad I don't, I've grown up, right? So I don't do this cross my fingers. But how many of you hide 
or distort or manipulate the truth to work in your favor. Now notice what I didn't ask there. I didn't say, how many of you lie? Many of you would say, hey, I've done it before, but no, I don't boldface lie. The more relevant question is, but do we withhold, distort, or manipulate truth to work in our favor? Have you ever told a true story with a slant? to drive home your point more emphatically or to put yourself in more glamorous light than the raw facts allow? Or have you ever given someone your word that you're gonna do something and then you renege on your responsibility because it becomes inconvenient to follow through? Or do you ever purposely withhold truth to get an outcome that you want? Or do you ever purposely withhold truth to avoid a very uncomfortable or tense conversation with someone? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, there is no kindness more cruel than the kindness which consigns another person to their sin." Aren't you thankful that God's love is honest? You're here, and if you're here in Christ, meaning you're trusting in Christ, you're here because God's love is honest. God critiqued you. He told you that you had failed. He told you you're not perfect. He told you you have sinned. He was honest with you. And if you're in Christ, you believed him. You believed him and you turned to Jesus for salvation. God never avoids a hard conversation with his children through the Holy Spirit. Never. He is honest because he loves you. That's why he's honest. Because he loves you. Love that is honest reveals God's love. But second, what kind of love reveals God's love to the world? It's love that's honest, but second, love that is not vindictive. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a direct quote from the Old Testament in a number of places. Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. Jesus is accurately quoting this. And the people of the day were accurately quoting it. So what's the problem? Well, again, you have to understand the original intent and scope of the command and the law in the Old Testament to understand what it really means. This was certainly a prescriptive command, but it was 
actually very restrictive. Let me explain. If someone chopped your hand off and you got really angry, rightly so, and you responded by chopping their head off, right, suddenly what you have here is an escalating blood feud that has no end to it. It's upping retaliation. This eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, said that the initial act of violence was met with the same kind and degree. To prevent and a way for them to eliminate personal vendettas. Right, so this was a command for the judicial system, for public order, not for private retaliation. It was actually a law that was designed to limit retaliation, not promote it. The problem is in the first century by Jesus' time here, it had become the warrant for escalating personal retaliation. And that's not what it was meant to do. Jesus corrects this by giving three examples. The first is in verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Do not resist the evil person. That does not mean that we are to allow evil to run amok in our communities. Nor does it mean there's no reason for a police force or a military. Again, Jesus is speaking here of personal retaliation, not public order, but rather of personal retaliation. Now, regarding the slap on the cheek, if a right-handed person slaps the right cheek of someone, that's a backhanded slap. What's being spoken of here is an insult. Jesus says, if someone insults you, be prepared to receive another insult rather than to retaliate and strike back with an insult. Second example, verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. This was not outright robbery. This was, there was a process by which someone would use, an enemy would use legal means to confiscate someone's clothing. And what does Jesus say? How should you respond if that happens to you? He says, give him your cloak as well. Now, this is significant. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 22, the cloak was, was yours by right. You couldn't lose it. It was yours by legal right. So what Jesus is saying here is you need to be prepared to abandon something that you have a legal right to. That you have a legal right to. You need to be willing to abandon it. Third example, and then we're gonna tie them all together. Third example, verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
In the first century, any Roman soldier could legally commandeer a civilian to carry their baggage, to carry their luggage for a distance like a Roman mile. And Jesus says, if that happens to you, carry it two miles. Now, you and I know how our hearts respond to being pressed into service, how inconvenient it is. Those of you who have been pressed into jury duty and you don't get let go after a day, you know how inconvenient that is to be pressed into service and it can evoke outrage, it can evoke anger. And Jesus says here, don't get vengeful, be willing to help and even go beyond what is asked. Now here's what's striking. The verb in verse 41 forces you to go. In the Greek, that verb is used only one other time in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. It's also the parallel passage in Mark 4 or Mark 15. It says this, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled or forced this man to carry Jesus' cross. Jesus says, what you have done to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you have done to me. That when you serve someone, even if you're pressed into service, that when you serve someone, you're serving Jesus Christ himself, which is why you would go the extra mile, because he went more than the extra mile to save you. Now, how do all three of these examples tie together? I, I'm, I'm gonna prepare you for what I'm about to say. I'm gonna tell you that it's probably gonna make your skin crawl. You, you're not gonna like what you hear. I don't like to hear this. It's really hard to hear. But it's true, and it's what Jesus is communicating here. Jesus' followers have no rights. You don't have a right to retaliate, verse 39. You don't have a right to your possessions, verse 40. You don't have a right to your time and money, verse 41. And even sometimes, sometimes, your legal rights are abandoned. Verse 40. And you say, what does this have to do with love not being vindictive? Vindictiveness has everything to do with striking back when someone has violated your rights. You insulted me, and by insulting me, you stole my reputation, which I have a right to. You took my possessions, which I have a right to. 
You stole my time and my money, which I have a right to. You took something that I have a legal right to. I will retaliate and you will pay. That's vindictiveness. Jesus says, no, not my followers. Not my followers. Personal self-sacrifice displaces personal retaliation. In 1964, Nelson Mandela began his prison sentence at Robben Island. He was thrown in prison for resisting apartheid which was an oppressive system of segregation and discrimination in South Africa. For the next 27 years, he would only be known as prisoner number 46664. And for those years, he labored in a limestone quarry, chipping away at white rock in the hot sun with no protective eyewear which basically destroyed his tear ducts in his eyes so that he wasn't able to even cry for a number of years. His possessions, his time, his money his dignity, his reputation was taken from him. And then on February 11th, 1990, the surprising happened. He was released from prison. He had a right to retaliate. In fact, the world was, was, was waiting and watching to see would this man rage against the world and rage against this system, unjust system, that had ruined his life for 27 years. And he didn't. He spoke quietly of the nobility of being able to suffer. Love is not vindictive because God's love is not vindictive. I've turned to these verses often in recent months and we, we read it for the confession, the assurance. I'll turn to him again, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. Jesus committed no sin. Neither was deceit, untruth, found in his mouth. When he was reviled or insulted, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If anyone had a right to retaliate, in fact, if you just go read the passion narratives in the gospels again, and you read what Jesus went through and how he was retreated, when you read that, you go, Jesus, set him straight. 
You're innocent. Say something. And he didn't. And you and I need to be really thankful that he didn't. Because we wouldn't be sitting here today if he did. The only reason that we experience salvation, gracious salvation, is because Jesus remained silent and went to the cross. What vindictiveness do you need to hand over to Jesus? In what situation do you need to trust, entrust yourself to the God who judges justly? God's love is not vindictive, and therefore his image bearers are to love not vindictively. And that can only come by the strength of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing in you of yourself that cannot love vindictively. That's a work of the Spirit of Jesus through you. What kind of love reveals God's love to the world? A love that's honest, a love that's not vindictive, and finally, a love that is undeserved. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you won't find this in the Old Testament. This is one that had, had, this has gotten off the rails. You will find in the Old Testament, love your neighbor. You'll even find in the Old Testament, be kind, be helpful to your enemies. Love your enemies. You won't find, hate your enemies. This is one that had gotten very uh, distorted. And so Jesus corrects it radically in verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Persecutors are the hardest enemies to love. This isn't just speaking of someone who holds different beliefs than you, nor of someone that maybe is harming other people. This is someone who's harming you. This is someone who is slandering you. Someone who's persecuting you. And Jesus says, don't hate them. Love them, and then he gets specific. How are you to love them? Pray for them. Do you know how hard it is to pray for someone that's persecuting you? And I don't mean pray for their harm. That's easy. I mean pray for their healing. That's the measure of loving enemy, is can I pray for them? And yet this is the love that reveals God's love. You know, loving those who love you is easy. Is that the good and right thing to do? Yes. But that's not ultimately the kind of love that reveals God's love. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
do not even the tax collectors do the same? In the eyes of Jesus' audience, the tax collectors were the most wicked people of the day. I mean, Jesus chose the most, he chose the most wicked person to say, hey, even that person loves those who love them. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil, that's divine. God loves his enemies. You say, how? Verse 45, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God pours out his blessings of sunshine and rain on those who don't acknowledge him, on those that even curse him. An atheist can go to the beach in the morning and watch a beautiful sunrise. God doesn't take that, that creational gift away even though that person doesn't acknowledge that God exists. An agnostic, someone who maybe believes there's a God, but he's not personal and therefore doesn't really thank or show any gratitude, an agnostic that plants his garden in the backyard, watches the nourishing rain cause this garden to sprout and bear fruit. God doesn't take away his creational gift of rain because that person doesn't acknowledge him. And if you move beyond creational gifts that he gives freely to his enemies, let's move to the gift of salvation. The scriptures say the gift of salvation is given to God's enemies. Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God loves his enemies and calls his image bearers to do the same. John Stott says this really well. And I'm just, this is a quote that's gonna, it's, it's gonna drive home. Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours. God loves those who don't deserve his love. And he calls his image bearers to love in that way. After the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the, the toppling of Saddam Hussein's statue in Baghdad, there were a few public Christian churches that emerged. 
Gathan Thomas pastored one of these churches, his congregants decided to erect a sign on the side of their building that said, Jesus is the light of the world. His church, not surprisingly, was raided by bandits. They raided it, and then they left a note on a piece of cardboard with a warning. Said this, Jesus is not the light of the world. Allah is, and you have been warned. The note was signed, the Islamic Shiite party. Now, how did Pastor Ghassan respond to this in his congregation? He loaded up a van with children's gifts and medical supplies. And he drove it to the headquarters of the Islamic Shiite party. And he delivered these gifts to the sheikh, who was the leader. And he said to him, Christians have love for you because our God is a God of love. And then he asked for permission to read from the Bible. And he read from John chapter eight, where it says, Jesus is the light of the world. And then he showed him the, the cardboard note. And these Muslim leaders, absolutely astounded and shocked by Pastor Ghassan's actions, apologized. And the sheikh himself showed up at Pastor Ghassan's ordination service at his church. God's love is undeserved. That's what defines his love. You and I are recipients of God's love that we don't deserve. Because of your sin, you never have and you never will earn his love. It is undeserved, but he continues to lavish it upon you as you continue to sin, even habitually sin, because of what Christ has done for you. Because Christ has removed every one of your sins, past, present, and future, God continues to lavish his love upon you because you're holy and blameless in his sight. And he calls you as an image bearer to lavish his love on those around you that don't deserve it. So here's the question. Who are you withholding love from? Because in your mind, they don't deserve it. And let me broaden to a few more questions to capture this entire passage. Who are you not loving well by not being honest with? Recognizing that it's honest love and make sure it's honest love. Honest love reveals God's love. And against whom are you harboring vindictive thoughts? Or maybe 
against whom have you carried out vindictive actions? What an opportunity. For God, by his Holy Spirit, through you, to love others in a way that reveals his love, a love that is honest, a love that is not vindictive, a love that is undeserved. And I will say it again, you can't do this in your own strength. It's not just your love, it's, it's God's love through you. Jesus lives in you by his Holy Spirit. When you submit to him, when you worship him, when you seek him, God's love works through you and, and, and does things and works towards people in a way that is shocking. Because God's love is amazing and it is shocking. We don't get it because of our fallen flesh. But once we're redeemed, the Spirit works in mighty ways. So who is that person? Who are those people that God is calling you to love with an honest love, a non-vindictive love, and a love that's undeserved? Let's pray. Father, your love is amazing. It's unconditional, it's deep, it's wide. We see your love in the face of your son, Jesus. We see your love in how he marched to the cross. Father, but we confess there are people in our lives that we have no desire to extend love to. And it's that honest confession that opens up the, the windows for the light to come in, that your spirit can give us the power to love honestly and to not retaliate and to love the person that doesn't deserve love because we are first and foremost ones that don't deserve your love. Oh, Father, as we come to this meal now, the Lord's Supper, would this be a, a moment of receiving your undeserved love again and tasting it and basking in it as you lavish it upon us that we can move out of this time as your image bearers, loving others. Father, thank you for Jesus. Would you prepare our hearts now as we continue to sing? In Christ's name we pray, amen.